0: Morning, Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald. He is Saeed Jones. It's Wednesday, and you are watching AM to DM. Who,
1: child? Uh, Savannah Guthrie. Mm. <laughs> Mm. received one of the biggest Twitter ratios of 2019. I know it's really early, but she's coming in hot, y'all. Over 41,000 replies to her tweet from last night, last time I checked. Here it is. Sitting down with Nicholas Sandman, the student at the center of the protest controversy at the Lincoln Memorial. All right, Mm. and one of those replies of the 41,000 was from Bishop Talbert
0: Swan, who said, please send me the link to the shows where you sat down with the parents of Laquan McDonald, Tamir Rice, Trey Yvonne Martin, and a host of other innocent black boys who were killed and had their reputation smeared by bigoted white people to justify their murders. All right, a lot
1: of eloquence there. Chelsea Peretti just said, pass. Just said,
0: pass. (laughs) Now, obviously, that picture
1: went out yesterday. The tweet went out yesterday. Last night. Now the the, the, the talks and the clips are
0: out Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. What do you
1: make of it? I mean, I, it's, it's kind of, it, I'm running out of steam. I mm. understand this is complicated. I mean, welcome to reality. If we were talking again about any one of those photos, you know, black and white photos that we saw in the 50s and 60s, if that had happened now, it would be just as complicated. That's called reality, that's called nuance. It's not fake news, mm-hmm. right? We can't discount the functions of, of white privilege and race and everything. And so to see this guy getting the very standard, you know, Boys will be boys. Mm -hmm. Look how innocent he is treatment from an interviewer that I very much respect. I said this yesterday. I really respect Savannah Guthrie. I watch her work. I respect it. I learn from it. Mm -hmm. It's disappointing.
0: It is. It was disappointing. Um, In the interview, it should be noted that he said that he felt like he had nothing to apologize for. Mm -hmm. He does not apologize in the interview. Um, But it has been a story that has really... Captured the moment, that's right. what I keep coming back to, is basically you had it break over the weekend, everyone discussing it, then you had other people posting, well, here's the longer videos, here's the real right. context, and then you had other people posting, well, actually, hang on, there's these, yeah. and it's just watching this pendulum right. kind of go back and forth, and and Adam Surer at The Atlantic right. has an essay this morning that really spoke to me where he just talks about kind of the overcorrecting right. that we are seeing constantly, especially in this age of Trump, especially when the media is kind of under attack, mm-hmm. right? You have people just really jumping
1: out of their skin right. to be like, whoa, whoa, wait, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And, and that ties into this overcorrection moment that we're in. Absolutely. And and I retweeted this earlier this morning, but um, reporter Sopan Deb pointed out that the same people here who were going, this is a learning opportunity for people in media to not jump to conclusions, he points to those same outlets the way they covered a few years years ago when there was a high school student, I believe in Texas, um, who's, you know, brown skinned Mm -hmm. and had made the alarm clock. clock. And Good it was clock. like, he made a bomb. Those same outlets that now are like, you know, we're jumping to conclusions, even going so far as to say this is an example of the left racially profiling. Mm-hmm. Like, they covered him, and they were like, talking about that kid like he was a terrorist. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, what is the truth? And, and where, Adam really and where does And are the rules? Yeah. And
0: you do, you watch that video, you can't ignore the fact that these young men were doing tomahawk chops. Like, there were moments there. But yeah. listen, I highly recommend that everybody yeah. read Adam Sears' piece to that point. It's great. Here's a tweet from the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture's Lene Spruce, and she's quoting Adam Sewer here. While all children deserve forgiveness and understanding in America, children who are not white
1: are often simply not seen as children at all. Absolutely, uh, George M. Johnson earlier this week pointing out that when Tamir Rice was shot and killed by police in just a matter of seconds on that playground, he was described as an adult. That was same for Michael Brown. Michael Brown being killed and then being covered by the New York Times, one of the outlets that I think is doing a lot of this chiding, he's no angel. Yes. So we, we see, we see the, the differences and where this thoughtfulness and nuance is applied. I believe uh, the phrase that is often used is watch white
0: Work, But mm. let's take it to the timeline. What do you think about how the protest controversy
1: is being covered at this point? Tell us your thoughts using the hashtag AM2DM. And to that point, uh, it is not over yet. The president is tweeting about this, and the Today Show also had this to say. We have interviewed Mr. Nathan Phillips a few times, but we invited him again. Now, in light of this conversation, I guess, with Nicholas Sandman, I think we're going to hear from him tomorrow Whew. on today.
0: Well, I'm glad they're doing that interview on the one hand, but on the other hand, tomorrow today, is it yesterday yet? Yeah, I was like, if we have
1: to talk about it at all, I would have liked to see them sitting side by side this morning with Savannah Guthrie.
0: And there's a point right there. Well, listen, here's a tweet from The Atlantic. Mm. The Bohemian Rhapsody director, Brian Singer, has been trailed by accusations of sexual misconduct for 20 years. Here his alleged victims tell their stories. Alex French and Max Porter report.
1: Alex Jung tweeted this quote from the story. Eric goes to regular Alcoholics Anonymous meetings now and says he met other men who have their own stories about Brian Singer, quote, there's a bunch of us. It's like you were one of Singer's boys, me too. Wow, BuzzFeed News senior film reporter Adam B. Vary joins us now from
0: Los Angeles. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. Okay, let's start here. For folks who don't know, who is Brian Singer? And before we get into the allegations themselves, What is the significance of this new reporting about him?
2: Brian Singer is a film uh, film director. He's, uh, most people I think would know him from uh, directing a lot of the X Men movies. His first breakout hit was the movie The Usual Suspects in 1995. Um, And then he just most recently directed uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, but we can get into that. Uh, You know, he's had allegations dogging him since very early in his career, since the late 1990s. Uh, And uh, I think most recently, people might remember that in 2014, a man named named Michael Egan accused him of rape. Uh, That uh, suit was later dropped, and uh, Egan was, uh, for some people, discredited. But uh, it's been something that's been sort of hovering over Brian Singer for a long time. This new report uh, has four new uh, accusations in them, and it's a pretty comprehensive look at almost all of the allegations, major allegations against Brian Singer. And uh, I think for a lot of people, after the uh, Harvey Weinstein stories first broke in late 2017, uh, a lot of people were sort of wondering if this might happen for Brian Singer. I think in Hollywood, it's a somewhat open secret that uh, Singer has uh, a checkered history with this kind of thing. And people were wondering, when's that story coming for him? And now here it is. Great. Okay, and at this point,
1: I do want to talk about the
2: allegations for people watching.
1: If you're unfamiliar, this is your trigger warning. This is hard, okay? Um, The reporters note that they spent 12 months investigating for this story for The Atlantic, um, and they spoke to more than 50 sources, including uh, four men who have never before told their stories to reporters. So what are the more significant allegations we found out this morning?
2: Uh, the two, I think, most major new allegations. Uh, one, I mean, a man named Victor uh, Valdovinos. I'm hopefully pronouncing that correctly. Says that when he was 13 years old, uh, and uh, Brian Singer was shooting his film *Apt Pupil*, which came out in 1998, um, at Valdovinos' uh, middle school, that uh, Brian Singer essentially recruited him out of the bathroom to be an extra in a shower scene. And then when Valdovinos showed up on set, he was told to strip naked get into a towel, and then Brian Singer led him into a secluded part of the block room set. And uh, Valdivinos alleges that he was repeatedly sexually molested by Singer throughout the day. And then uh, another allegation, uh, this is a man who uses the pseudonym Andy, alleged that um, when he was 15 years old in the late 1990s, Um, He was uh, brought upstairs uh, at the estate of Mark Collins Rector, who is uh, a registered sex offender. That's a whole separate thing. But uh, in any event, uh, this uh, man, Andy, alleges that Singer engaged in sexual intercourse with him, knowing that he was 15 years old and that the act pupil actor Brad Renfro, Uh, was present in the bedroom when the sex began and then left the room, uh, right, as it was sort of initiated. Um, The story also alleges through two unnamed sources that uh, Brian Singer would refer to Brad Renfro as his boyfriend. At the time, Brad Renfro was 14 uh, and uh, Renfro died in uh, 2008.
0: Died in two thousand eight.
2: Wow. So I, I just want to
0: ask: in light of these new allegations, have we heard anything from Brian Singer or his team? And and what has has his past been like when allegations come up? Has he ever spoken to them?
2: Uh, BuzzFeed News reached out to both Singer's lawyer and publicist this morning and have not heard back. In The Atlantic story through his lawyer, uh, Singer basically denies any uh, having sexual intercourse at any time with anyone who is underage um, and also having a preference for people who are underage. Um, and uh, earlier in the late fall... Uh, When the story was still uh, in the works and at that point was at Esquire, Singer also released a a pretty lengthy statement to Instagram in which he pretty categorically denied the story and cast as much doubt as he could on the sort of sourcing behind it and uh, the motivations behind writing it. Uh, And this has been a pretty consistent pattern of Singer's uh, throughout his career. Whenever these kinds of allegations come up, he's pretty Uh, firmly denied ever engaging in any kind of uh, sexual activity with minors. Okay, and and one last question before you go, and it's an
3: important
1: one. Um, Brian Singer has recently signed a deal for a new movie worth $10 million. Um, And of course, Bohemian Rhapsody garnered five Oscar nominations yesterday. So can you just like update us on that? Have we heard from any of these
2: studios about their responses to this reporting? Uh, Fox told BuzzFeed News, uh, Fox is the studio that released uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, that they're not commenting on this story. Uh, And I think that that's going to be playing out uh, over the next week and month as the Oscars sort of, you know, as we went up to the Oscars. As far as uh, this new movie, it's called Red Sonja. Uh, That is through a company called Millennium Films. We've also reached out to a representative for that company and have not heard back. I don't know, how any company can uh, continue to work with Brian Singer in light of these allegations until these allegations are further, uh, until Singer sort of, you know, further answers for them. Um, but that's the question that I think a lot of people have been asking for a while now, is why people keep working with Brian Singer, because, you know, he has, he was fired off of Bohemian Rhapsody, not for sexual misconduct, but because he wasn't showing up to set and uh, not working the job that he was hired to do. And that is also another pattern of behavior that is, was well-known in the industry. So I think the industry is asking itself a lot of important questions today about, you know, how much was, uh, were people abetting this behavior, how much were people looking the other way, and why were people continuing to work with Brian Singer, knowing uh, at least some of what is alleged in this Atlantic story. Right,
1: important questions. It's time for Answers Hollywood. Adam, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right, well, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News investigative reporter Azeen Goreshi.
0: Trump's lawyer claims his Moscow tower was barely more than a notion. There were no drafts, nothing in the file. Documents obtained by BuzzFeed News tell a different story. Here are the plans for the never-built Trump Tower Moscow.
1: Azeen joins us now. Uh, Good morning. Hi. Thanks for Uh, having me. Of course. All right, girl. Let's talk real estate. Uh, Rudy Giuliani claims there were no drafts, nothing in the file in regard to this Moscow tower. What do we know now?
4: So based on the incredible reporting that Jason Leopold and Anthony Cormier have been doing, you know, we know that these discussions have been happening um, well into Trump running for president. So well into to June of 2016. Um, based on that reporting that they've been hustling on for over a year, we also have documents, emails, texts, architectural renderings, and a signed letter of intent, business agreement between Trump and a builder, a developer in Russia. Um, basically laying out the plans for, you know, what was supposed to be the very icon of Trump luxury just three miles from the Kremlin, Mm -hmm. so in in Moscow City. Um, And it was supposed to be this, you know, gleaming glass obelisk um, with basically a diamond at the very top um, with the Trump brand, the Trump name emblazoned on it. Um, And and we really want to flesh out that, you know, many, many plans were being laid out for this building. um, And, you know, we have a signed agreement from Trump showing that.
0: Showing that. Okay, how long has Trump been trying to break into Moscow? Mm.
4: So, yeah, this has been a decades-long effort. He actually writes about it in The Art of the Deal himself, talking about going to Moscow in in 1987, I think, um, trying to to basically extend his brand there. Um, It didn't really move forward in a very real way until 2013 when he was hosting the Miss Universe pageant over there. Um, And then when it really got going, um, just happened to be in late 2015 and 2016, um, you know, when he was running for president.
1: Okay. And Azine, you know, the the plans are fascinating and I want to talk about them in a little more detail. Some of it's really funny, but for people who are like, okay, why is this important in the big picture? Can you explain why it's so significant that there's the existence of like photos and drawings and scale?
4: Um, I mean, I think it's, it's A, it's just important that it was happening at all. Uh, it's, it's unprecedented, but B, just the way that it's been talked about. Obviously we have Michael Cohen um, testifying to Congress saying that these discussions ended in January. Um, Anthony and Jason then showed that, you know, these ex- these discussions extended at least into, well into June. Um, and and uh, Special Counsel Robert Mueller has, has since also publicly confirmed that. So I think we have, A, a, a you know, a huge... Potentially three hundred million dollar business deal, and then we have, um, you know, how it's being talked about, um, and and how it's being actively lied about um, that it that it was actually happening. Mm. All right, now I want to talk
0: to, about specifics because we got the, the emails. Are crazy. There's all these other plans.
4: <laughs> uh, how tall are we talking
0: to Zine? How tall? How tall building are we talking? <laughs>
4: So this was supposed to be the tallest skyscraper in Europe. Um, and that's actually, you know, when they got the renderings, they had a New York City-based architect actually draw up these, you know, beautiful, like, icon of luxury renderings of this building and send it over to this developer in Russia who said, you know, I think this is a very interesting structure. And name mostly, I want to be the person to build what will be the tallest skyscraper in Europe. Um, it had so it was going to be over a uh, hundred stories tall. It was going to have luxury um, office buildings, luxury condos, luxury uh, hotel rooms, luxury parking. Um, all of this was very clearly stipulated in an agreement that we have that, that Trump signed.
1: Luxury parking. Um,
4: let's talk about Putin's
1: what would have been Putin's penthouse. Um, what do we know about it from the plans? How much would it have been how much would it have been worth? And crucially. Uh, What would Putin have kind of gotten out of this deal with the Trump organization? What was the goal? And what would the Trump organization get out of the deal with Putin?
4: Yeah, I think what Putin would have gotten is pretty clear, which is that they were going to be handing him um, a $50 million penthouse in this brand new luxurious building. Um, Based on Anthony and Jason's reporting again, um, this was sort of seen as a sort of bargaining chip in order to gain influence um, and, and sort of attract the you know wealthiest elite uh, in, in Russia. Basically, they thought that if they handed over you know the top um, gleaming penthouse in this in in this fancy new building um, to Putin, that they could then. Bring in all of these oligarchs who who definitely want to live in the same house as Putin, um, and then charge them, you know, two hundred fifty million dollars more than that. You know, so um, it was really it was really seen as a smart um, business investment. I think once this thing was actually going to be moving forward
0: again, does not think, seem to be something that they were just like casually talking about. Uh, and to that point, the one last thing that really struck me was the Ivanka spa. What's the deal there? Was it just a spa for Ivanka?
4: Uh, no, it would have been a spa for for all the fancy ladies of of Moscow. Um, this was also part of that business agreement uh, that that I've been talking about. Basically, saying that um, you know this this luxurious spa facility that would be part of the the Trump Tower Moscow um, would be basically that Ivanka could be the one to to design it, and if so, she would have full, um, full decision-making power over all of the interior design elements, everything. And it would be in keeping with the, the spa by Ivanka Trump brand, which we've seen crop up in other Trump hotels in DC and in Vancouver. Um, and it's this sort of rose gold, um, you know, Himalayan salt bath waterfall, uh, curated um, wellness experience that um, I invite you all to visit their website and, and learn more about.
0: Let me tell you, Himalayan salt, salt bath, that, that doesn't that, that doesn't sound that bad. That uh, Azeen, thank
1: you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. All right, listen up, friends. We've got a great show for you today. You are going to see my sit-down interview with the wonderful Golden Brooks. You know her from Girlfriends. She's also in I Am The Night Now. And we'll be talking with Lisandra Villa about... AOC, are we okay. really going with calling the Congresswoman AOC?
0: AOC, but this is interesting. You you felt conflicted about I this, just, but the other day you were just
1: using it willy-nilly. So been, how do you feel? It's been forced upon me by scripting and political Twitter. <laughs> is it like you, I just like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's weird like turning, she's, It's. it's it's not that hard to say. It is a long name to type. I want to know how y'all feel about this. Like I AOC think it's a Twitter and... thing. I think it's like about characters. You think it's characters? Sometimes yeah. I'm like, is this people who like, just don't want to say a Latina, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Like or maybe it's racism. Cause y'all got some long ass names too. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, she's been added to the House Oversight Committee. <laughs> it does raise interesting questions for Pelosi. Up next is fire tweets. But you know, what's the deal? What's the
2: deal <laughs> with the name y'all? AOC, we should set it out as a poll. <laughs> AOC or full name. Let's do it. <laughs>
1: Welcome back. Someone pointed out that AOC is now her Twitter handle.
0: Okay. So, so just use the I'm like, it's Twitter. It's fine. <laughs> I don't know why this wow, so that is really funny. <laughs> it's interesting to watch how it irritates you because you, you were know, using you it You know yesterday. what it
1: is. It's, I, the, <laughs> it's the pendulum swing. You know what it is part of us we're entering, and I know she's not running for, but it's like we're entering 2020, mm-hmm. where we're entering this this new political moment this period unfortunately that's forced upon us and I, I'm going to be looking at the nuances of how we talk about Politicians and particularly people of color in the public eye And mm-hmm. we cannot pretend that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is not electrifying and mm-hmm. I'm like looking at all these nuances And so yeah, it's something I obsess over It's something I obsess over. <laughs> that said, what would your what would your uh, initials be? Said Jones Really? That's my initials Uh, All six and twelve letters. Uh, All right, all right. let's get into these fire tweets. You're supposed to be laughing now, and I'm about to flip the table. (laughs) All right, this first tweet comes from my girl, Jean. Oh, my God. Jean. Y'all ever read a text message, then respond in your head, and then never type it to the person? All the time. Isn't that how Twitter works? Oh, I'm sorry, how texting well, works? Uh, Twitter too, maybe. Yeah, but yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, ugh, it's the worst feeling. Yeah. Uh, the other day I that's had... all the, I do. Yeah. Also, equally mortifying is the thing where you, like literally I have texted it, forgot to hit send. Mm. Days go by. Mm. Well, that's a tough I'm one. I'm kind of like, you know, I haven't heard from so-and-so. Mm. What happened? And I go back and look and I'm like, I never said... They're probably thinking, what's... You found the email in the draft. <laughs> The email in the drafts. All right.
0: Princess tweeted, do y'all ever get pre-annoyed? Like you already know someone's about to piss you the hell off.
1: Yes. Yes. It's called being human. It's called... We don't answer our texts. Yes. Sometimes we're pre-annoyed. Yeah. Yeah. And covering the 2020 election. Like, I'm already there. Like, I am already irritated. It's 2019. I know. Indeed, I do know, friend. All right. This one comes from um, Kayami. Do you ever eat some disgusting junk food and it's like, I'm clogging my arteries for this? Oh, (laughs) man. Oh, and it's like you have that craving. I'm really,
0: it really upsets me. Cause if you're gonna, you're like, you know what? It's a cheat day or whatever the hell you tell yourself when you're just like, I'm gonna go ham on about 20 hamburgers. Have a good time, I deserve. And then the hamburgers aren't even that good. Yeah. Oh, it makes me mad.
1: Sad. It makes me mad. i I finish eating it, though.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Billy tweeted, My message needs a sent with attitude
1: effect. Absolutely. That's true.
0: I'm like, that's what got me into using emojis more. Yeah, but just like like, a little
1: where the text just goes, uh huh. Because
0: (laughs) sometimes I read it with that uh huh.
1: Yeah. And then the person's like, what are you talking about? I did not mean like that at all. And I mean, Twitter does too. I mean, we're not the first people to notice that like sarcasm on Twitter does not tend to go well. You really gotta work it. Yeah, Yeah. it's hard. (laughs) Like Savannah Guthrie mess around and get ratioed. Anyway. You ready for Tweet of the Day? Mm-hmm. It comes from Universal Rundle, and I would love the story behind this username. Yikes. that? <laughs> um, y'all talk about AirPod wearers being all fancy, but people who have Hulu and Netflix accounts are the real ballers. That is just the truth. That's true. That, that is true. just, let me ask you, do
0: you have them? Yes. Pay for them yourself. Yes. Good for you. I- a fine, upstanding American citizen. Do you? Citizen. I ain't saying shit. Coming up! You get to see Saeed sit down <laughs> with Golden Brooks, but up next we are going live from the district. You are a grown-ass adult. I'm just saying that maybe sometimes I there's I literally know your salary. <laughs> Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News politics reporter, Lisandra Villa. Good morning, Lisa. Good
5: morning. How are you guys? Doing all right. Doing 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 all right. Feeling a
1: little spicy, so look out, Lisa. Um, Here's a scoop from you last night, and girl, I screamed when I saw it, so shout out to your reporting. Uh, A (laughs) bunch of progressives were just added to the House Oversight Committee, the Notorious AOC, (laughs) Rashida Tlaib (laughs) Kweli, Ayanna, Elvis Presley. What are you doing here? And Death Row Connor.
0: Okay, okay. Putting our own little spin on it there. Here's a tweet from Ayanna Presley. Coming to a committee hearing near you soon, I have the receipts. (laughs) Lisa, how did these Congress people, some of whom are freshmen, land spots on such a powerful committee?
5: Yeah, and by the way, my Twitter is still blowing up over this thing because people are very into it. Um, But the technical answer to your question is that once House Democrats took over the House, uh, they get a bunch more seats on every committee. And so House Democrats um, have a steering policy co- committee that actually voted last night. And um, they they these members are among those chosen to join now that they have more seats. And the fact that there are so many progressives, and progressives with big names, by the way, is a big deal.
1: It is a big deal. And again, for people like me who haven't been geeking out, because I literally I was like, let me be doubly sure, what does the House Oversight Committee do? What does the House Oversight (laughs) Committee do?
5: (laughs) Yeah, well, the House Oversight Committee um, actually has a really broad jurisdiction, and they can open up a lot of investigations into the federal government. But you're going to be hearing about it a lot because they're going to be an important check on the Trump administration, especially now because, like I said, the House is controlled by Democrats.
0: Okay, now I want to ask, like, basically... Do we know what their first big hearing, like, okay, we've got this new committee, but when are we gonna see what they're all about? When's their first big hearing?
5: In fact, we do know, and it's going to be the Michael Cohen hearing on February 7th, and given that BuzzFeed News just reported on Thursday, had a bombshell report, you may have heard about it, um, that Donald Trump directed Cohen to lie to Congress, I think they're going to have questions for him. So it's going to be a lit hearing, probably.
1: A lit hearing. Girl, I am like, mark the calendar. I'm living. Okay, and then here's the other big question out of this. What can we read into or extrapolate about Nancy Pelosi's strategy as leader of the House now, based on, as you noted, it's a big decision to put a lot of freshman Congress people on such a powerful committee.
5: Yep. So something that's worth keeping in mind is that this has been controlled by Republicans for years. And you've seen a lot of Freedom Caucus types like Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows really running away with a with committee and, and pursuing their agenda. Now there's a big pendulum swing um, and and you're seeing progressives are probably going to be driving a lot of the conversation coming out of this committee. Right.
1: Well, here's a tweet from Politico that also got our attention overnight. Uh, the White House is forging ahead with plans to hold Trump's State of the Union address in the House chamber next Tuesday, again, daring Nancy Pelosi to nix the event. So, again, another head-to-head confrontation for the two of them. Here's my question. Logistics, I guess. Can the president basically force the State of the Union address into the House chambers when he has not been formally invited by the Speaker of the House, Pelosi?
5: In short, that's not entirely clear. On its face, it seems like Nancy Pelosi definitely has to sign off on this. But Pelosi phrased her letter to Trump as sort of a request. And this thing isn't, isn't hasn't been called off yet. Um, so so we will find out whether there is a State of the Union address. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that Donald Trump also has options, right? He could always hold an Oval Office address um, or find another venue for his speech. So we will see where we're hearing from Mr. Trump next week.
0: Okay, Lisa, uh, I'm sorry for asking you this, but does this mean we're any closer to a resolution on the shutdown? Nope. Nope. All right, and that's it. Thank you so much for joining us, Lisa.
5: Thanks for having me. See
0: you guys later. Bye. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. The Supreme Court allowed
1: Trump to implement his transgender military ban while cases challenging it proceed. Joining us now to talk about this story is BuzzFeed News legal editor Chris Geithner. Chris, good morning. Good morning, guys. All right. So obviously this is big news for LGBT people or anyone who cares about Supreme Court decisions. What exactly did the court decide yesterday?
6: Yeah, or, or anybody who cares about the military, <laughs> to be honest. It, it's, I mean, what the court did was said that two of the, the, the cases, there are four cases that have been pending challenging the transgender military ban. And what the court said yesterday in two of the cases that are pending is that the injunctions against implementing the ban had to be put on hold. Um, what that means is that the ban can be enforced. However, there's still one, uh, injunction that's out there, uh, but the, the, uh, Justice Department basically has, uh, and DOD have said that they plan to, to go to court in short order and basically ask that trial judge to, to take the hint from the Supreme Court and lift the stay. And at that point, they would be able to implement the, the, the ban uh, that has really been Trump's goal since uh, July 2017. But it also means that people who have been serving openly since the summer of 2016 are now sort of in a, a limbo position.
0: Are, are sort of in a limbo. And let's talk about those
6: transgender soldiers. Uh, what are their reactions to this ruling? I mean, my colleague Dominic Holden uh, reported last night a, a, a piece about what's sort of, in a, a sense, going to be the obvious reaction—that they're they're very frightened, scared, anxious about what's going to happen um, under the the sort of revised policy. Because what happened was Trump had an initial broadband that was going to be everyone, uh, and that was being struck down by courts left and right, and so this revised ban uh, basically says anyone who... Is transgender and has has started transitioning is going to be not able to serve, which is virtually all transgender people. And uh, there's an exception for people who are already serving uh, under the policy when they were allowed to serve openly. And so it, it's not exactly clear what's going to happen to people serving. It, it. I mean, the 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 real thing that came across in Dom's story yesterday night is that like regardless of whether they're allowed to serve, think about the message that this serves. I mean, the statement from the Department of Justice was that the the injunctions allowing transgender service members to continue serving uh, had a, a negative effect on the military's uh, lethality abilities. Um, and, and that's just obviously not the position... Uh, where you want to be as a service member if the position of the military and the government is that your presence is a danger to the, the military's preparedness.
1: And um, I guess one last question here. Now that Brett Kavanaugh is on the court, and I know, of course, there have already been a few decisions, um, but is this like the, one of the first, perhaps more prominent examples of what we can perhaps begin to expect from the Supreme Court, these five, four decisions that begin to tilt in a new direction?
6: I mean, I think what we saw yesterday is the power that John Roberts, the chief justice, now also has as the swing vote. Um, he's had a few decisions where he's gone with the more liberal justices. Um, but I think the, the, the bottom line is that John Roberts is a conservative. And I think we, we started to see what that's going to look like uh, with yesterday's rulings. All right. Well, of course, our thoughts are
1: with all of our veterans and military people serving our country. Chris, thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. All right, friends. Uh, up next, I sit down with actress Golden Brooks. You know her from Girlfriends as Maya. Oh, hell no. Nah. And also, it's time to get to see her on the TNT show I Am the Night, directed by Patty Jenkins and with Chris Spine. She's got, she does it. It's, it's intense. You talk to Patty, you know. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It's a lot.
1: Hi, my queens. This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with actor Golden Brooks, star of the upcoming murder mystery drama, I Am the Night. Ooh, hi, Golden. Oh I've goodness. always wanted to get to say hi, Golden. <laughs> I know, because
3: you know It's like a noun, yeah. it's an adjective. And There's it's just several, like, but yes.
1: It's just like you look golden, Thank you are you. golden.
3: You know, I try. I try. You know, it's a lot of name to live up to. I love. You fair? Know, fair. I it, get it that. It is. I, so that. I was like, mom, dad. You know, I don't know what was going on, Both but the tea. I, yeah. you know, the tea on. They knew the tea before I knew the tea. Screaming. Clearly, screaming. Yeah. <laughs>
1: well, part of what I love. I mean, obviously, I loved you as Maya on girlfriends, and we're going to talk about that. Thank you. But part of the joy of this is that you are getting rave rave reviews mm. for playing Jimmy Lee in I Am the Night and she is a very different character from yeah. what I think a lot of yes. people are used to. She yes. is a, a difficult
3: she, mother, let's oh, say that. Oh. So
1: how, what was it like getting to that place to play that character?
3: You know, it's being a mother mm-hmm. in, in real life, it's, um, it's interesting. A lot of my roles that I've played, I've played mothers, mm-hmm. and every one of them is different, you know? Um, I think as an actor, your, your goal, your mission is to be able to to tap into your arsenal of emotion Mm -hmm. and really pull out different types of characters, Mm -hmm. different pieces of us. We're flawed, human beings are flawed. Mm -hmm. I love the flawed characters. Mm. I loved playing Maya Mm on Girlfriends, but when I got this script for I Am The Night, um, the fact that it was just Patty Jenkins in general, like I would have cut carrots for her. I would have done craft service. (laughs) I'm like, okay, um, you want celery as well? I mean, I just love, uh, she's just such a visionary. but when I read I Am The Night, I, I read. I was looking at the, the Jimmy Lee character and I thought, wow, she's mm-hmm. really intense. Mm-hmm. And the first emotion that came mm-hmm. to mind for me was she's very sad. Mm. And I thought, okay, this is a woman, clearly things didn't work out for mm-hmm. her. Um, And the cards that she was dealt, she literally had to make the most of it. And I think we all have family members like Mm -hmm. that where we become a victim in our own lives. Mm. And she takes it out on everybody around her. But even in that, Mm -hmm. there is a, Jimmy Lee loves Fauna. Mm -hmm. And I think that I try to find the empathy in her. And it's difficult playing someone that is angry, resentful, Mm But still, there's some integrity there. She was a singer. She wanted to be a blues singer. It didn't Mm -hmm. work out. You know, she's raising this child that's really not hers. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of, you know, that she loved a man. He left them. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is systematic of a lot of people in our time. So I wanted to honor that Mm -hmm. within, you know, the the emotion that was on the page. I Mm -hmm. had to honor that as well. She was a true character. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we suppress a lot. Mm -hmm. But it was interesting for me to go deep Mm -hmm. and really go to that victimized person deep down inside of me. They're all there, we just learned to hide it. And I pulled her out.
1: You did, and and what's what's interesting too is, and I love that the way you just so beautifully brought this together is that we have Jimmy Lee as a mother who's taking care of Fauna Hodel, who we eventually realize is the you know daughter of the alleged Black Dahlia serial killer. Yeah. So it's almost like a story connected to a bigger story. Yes. Did, did you know about the Black Dahlia? You know,
3: murder? it's so funny. I've always been drawn to old Hollywood, mm. just the whole film noir. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, the whole, you know, Norma Desmond and this whole time and era, I've always been fascinated with the architecture of that time. So the Black Dahlia murders, I didn't know that much about, but I know that I've always I've loved that period. Mm -hmm. So knowing that this period, Mm -hmm. the story was a true story within that period, um, I was really fascinated Mm -hmm. and drawn. And to be, you know, I think I am threaded in there. I think I Mm -hmm. am part of the bigger piece. Um, Mm -hmm. What's so interesting about I Am The Night is that there's race relations, Mm -hmm. there's the murder mystery that was really never truly solved. And so there's just all these different dynamics that are that are weaved in and I think that's what makes it so captivating.
1: Well I love it. This is like you being introduced to audiences in, in another way. It is yeah. and you
3: it's important. I mean I go I look at like a Halle Berry mm-hmm. when she you know when she did Monsters Ball, mm-hmm. you sometimes have to step out of your comfort zone right. to sort of get Get the get the message out about right. who you are as an artist, right. and I I really appreciated this. It's it's not pretty, mm. and I don't I don't care. I like right. being flawed. I like showing the deep darker mm-hmm. um, side of me, or just another level, another layer. Mm-hmm. It's important as an actor to not get too linear.
1: Absolutely, because and because that's the thing. Because we should talk about girlfriends, Maya. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, you know, eight seasons. Yeah. I it, you know my relationship with those women.
2: <laughs> 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 did we teach in. you a few
1: things? Yes, we yeah. And I mean, it, it's, a, it's a show I go back yes. to yeah. now that I'm in my 30s. You know, it's like,
3: oh, yeah, okay. Thank you. Jesus. So I was much. like, did you just graduate <laughs> from NYU? I'm like, Geez. Bless you, <laughs>
1: like, Golden. Where's so <laughs> your degree? <laughs> um, but, but I wanted to talk to you, you know, because Maya was is an iconic character and is known for the joy and the keeping it yes, real. Um, yes. So what was it like playing her?
3: Oh, gosh. You know, I always have to give, you know, shout out to Kelsey Grammer and mm-hmm. Mara Bacaquil because those two, I mean, they joined forces mm-hmm. together and made history. Yeah. I mean, Girlfriends was kind of on the hills of like the Cosby show right. where, you know, African-Americans needed were thirsting for just some commonality mm-hmm. that was that represented who they were mm-hmm. and after the Cosby show and um, you living can look single. at the living single and then clear, you had yeah. Moesha the yeah. Parkers homeboys in outer space mm-hmm. you know UPN that's mm-hmm. where you went to see pieces of your life yeah. and then girlfriends yeah so for women especially African-American women we didn't have that. We did right. not have um, images that represented who we were and not just in a very one-dimensional mm-hmm. kind of way. So I think that's why Girlfriends just, it was the black sex in the city, as right. they called it. Totally. And I loved playing Maya because, again, a flawed character from the other side of the track. <laughs> How do you make someone sassy, Right. and I'll say hood, mm-hmm. And make her relatable. Right. Make her, girls from the hood are sad. We have emotions. We're not just, you know, trying to get our check and get our hair done. There were things that Maya went through. Mm-hmm. And I really worked really hard to find the humanity in her. And the same as Jimmy Lee finding the humanity in these characters that would normally be deemed. Write offs right. by society. Right. And it's important. She
1: could have been like the sassy side she, friend. She
3: could have just been the side peripheral girl, I, like, oh, you know, but right. I wanted to give her integrity. Mm-hmm. We all know people like that. Right. We all have family members, someone. Yeah. And you have to give them integrity. Mm-hmm. They deserve that. And so that's my mission to bring to bring integrity mm-hmm. to these these characters that would be otherwise deemed, mm-hmm. you know, sort of the underbelly of society. Absolutely. Um,
1: you know, Girlfriends wrapped in 2008. Um, still miss it, still yeah. miss it. Um, how do you feel, I mean, to that point, I mean, you you point to the lineage of comedic sick toms, and, you know, I, you know, for me, I think, I don't know if I saw black women at work regularly right. on TV right. until shows like Living right. Single, right. Moesha, That's right. That's right. and Girlfriends. How do you feel now? These years later, almost a decade later, are you are you like, yes, Hollywood, like you followed the lineage, yeah. or is it like you guys have more work to do?
3: Listen, there's always more work to do, mm-hmm. right? You can never get comfortable because mm-hmm. the minute you get comfortable is when things sort of unravel. Mm-hmm. But think about this. Mm-hmm. We've gone from good times to the Huxtables, to now we've got the, you know, um, we, we've got C- uh, Kerry Washington, you mm-hmm. know, we've got the Olivia Popes of the world. Mm-hmm. We've got Cookie, mm-hmm. you know, we've got, you know, Regina King who's mm-hmm. directing in Beale Street. And we are actually at the forefront of what's happening in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. We are blockbuster hits, girls trip. We are, we are selling out tickets. Mm-hmm. We are not the girl next door who brings a cup of sugar and then you never see her again. Mm. We, we, we are the, right. we are the person right. that Tracy? people are coming to see. Yeah, Tracy, Tracy Ellis, Ellis Ross, Ross yeah. Blackett. I mean, yes, times have changed. Mm -hmm. Times are changing. Um, There's always more work to be done, but Mm -hmm. I think Hollywood is starting to understand that the black woman, just the woman in general, Mm -hmm. um, um, multicultural mm-hmm. women are, are profitable mm-hmm. and we are in demand mm-hmm. and I think we always have been but sometimes it just takes something like a Black Panther mm-hmm. to understand all of what we are not just our marketability in terms of how funny we can be Absolutely. but aesthetically yeah. that we're not a cookie cutter, we're not this or this we're many shades, no mm-hmm. pun intended and I think that we're on our way I think we're springboarding to a whole new era so I'm really excited to see where, where this is going Oh my God! Absolutely,
1: Golden. You've been shining. Thank you. My my whole life. Oh hell yeah! So good to see you still shining and and thriving. Because, uh, my goodness, I I hope we get to talk to you again when it's like time for the awards and the accolades. Because you really bring it. Thank you so much, Golden. Thank you you so much. You're
3: so lovely. All right, friends. Again,
1: uh, I Am The Night premieres on Monday, January twenty eighth on TNT. Stay tuned for more AM to DM. Thank you,
3: Golden. Thank you. You were (laughs) amazing. You're lovely. So fun. Okay.
0: Here's a tweet from The New Republic. What's worse than overflowing trash cans during a government shutdown? How about halting toxic waste inspections and hurricane preparations? That's right, it's day 33 of the government shutdown. And Emily Atkins, staff writer for The New Republic, joins us now to talk about how the shutdown is an environmental crisis. Good morning, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm great, and I love that wallpaper. That is gorgeous. Are you coming to us from a very fancy hotel?
7: (laughs) Co-working space, yeah.
0: Well, it is. That is very nice. Well, listen, those overflowing trash cans are a very visual sign of the shutdown. I've seen them shared on the timeline a lot. But what else is going on with the EPA that's less obvious to most of us?
7: Well, I think, so I'm an environmental reporter, and I have this problem all the time with environmental issues is that so many of the ones that affect us uh, the most are sort of invisible. Climate change can be invisible sometimes. Water pollution that accumulates over time can be invisible. It's only those big spills or those big trash cans that really get people's attention. But really, I mean, environmental protection is, is sort of invisible because it's like when you go to a doctor, it's preventative care, right? We're preventing... By having an EPA, we're preventing the long-term buildup of pollution in our waterways and our air from chemicals and oil and other things like that. Um, And right now, that key prevention work is what's not happening. Um, There are 13,000 people that work at the EPA on a daily basis. Right now, uh, on or about 900 are showing up to work. Um, And those are the people generally that will respond to, say, your big disasters the same way if you went to a hospital like the emergency doctors would be there, but none of the other doctors would be there to the ones that sort of monitor and make sure that everything's that everything's going well. So that's the gist of it.
0: I mean, that's the gist of it. It is a terrifying gist to say the least. How has Andrew Wheeler responded to the lapses in inspections and other EPA services caused by the shutdown?
7: I mean, Andrew Wheeler has sort of maintained that there's nothing that he can do uh because of the lapse of appropriations he's not the one that can sign the bill saying that more EPA employees can come to work i mean although you know he has deemed himself critical staff he has deemed his aides critical staff he went to his confirmation hearing for the senate during the shutdown and you know employed EPA employees to help him prepare for that confirmation meeting that's essential staff but even he's acknowledged that the EPA isn't doing a lot of it's work right now, but he's maintained that they're still prepared for if a big environmental disaster happens, that they're still meeting quarter to deadlines, but he's admitted that, you know, 200 inspections a week happen across the country that the EPA does to make sure that there's uh, not harmful chemicals in our air and water. And those inspections aren't happening. And that's something that he's freely admitted.
0: 200 inspections a week just going, not happening. Uh, but it's not just the EPA, right? What other environmental agencies are impacted by the shutdown?
7: Yeah, I mean, the EPA is definitely not the only agency in our government that has to deal with the environment, right? The Park Service is one of them. And everyone, I think, has... They, they Parks are always a huge symbol of the government shutdown. And this one in particular, because uh, the Trump administration has decided to keep the parks open, uh, we've seen not only overflowing of trash cans, but overflowing of human waste into some of our most valued natural spaces. Vandalism, uh, cutting down of trees, uh, ATVs, off-roading, and some what are supposed to be protected spaces. Um, That can do potentially irreversible damage or damage that would take years to recover. Um, the national, uh, NOAA, the National Ocean Atmospheric Administration is also operating on, a sort of bare bones budget. And they're the ones who, you know, they, they help monitor our weather, um, and our oceans. Um, and so for example, there's a NOAA program where, uh, that, where they rescue beached animals, right? So animals that maybe get caught in something or they're sick and they, you know, marine mammals that they wash up on the beach. Uh, that program has been halted. Uh, the Hur- National Hurricane Center uh, scientific programs have been halted. Hurricane preparation programs have been halted. Hurricanes are... People don't think of hurricanes as environmental disasters, but they almost always are. They they uh, dredge up a lot of gross stuff in the air and the water and the soil. Um, they can hit Superfund sites, big toxic sites and overflow them. Um, so just not having our full capacity, it's basically like... Yeah, it's like, it's the best uh, analogy I can make is that it's like you go to a doctor to say, am I healthy? And they just kind of go, I don't know. (laughs)
0: they're like i'm not getting paid uh i don't I don't i don't really know listen just real quick before we let you go uh let's let's be optimistic for a moment even though this is the longest government shutdown in history let's be optimistic and say somebody's gonna get their act together and the government's gonna reopen how difficult will it be to contain the damage that's been done when the government hopefully knock on wood reopens
7: we're not going to know the damage that's been done because we're not doing key monitoring of our air and water. So it's sort of like uh, if you're supposed to get drug tested every single month, but one month uh, you're not getting drug tested. So you, maybe you did a lot of drugs and maybe you didn't, but no one would know. Um, and the thing is that so like, in, like a lot of enforcement isn't happening. So it not happening. So when the monitoring isn't happening, you know maybe polluters are polluting more into the environment this month because they know they can get away with it. Maybe they're not. Uh, we won't know. What we know is that there will be a work backlog. Um, and so there's going to be a lot that these EPA employees have to catch up with.
0: Wow. I didn't even think about that the fact that, like, some evil, like, Captain Planet supervillain could just be like, oh, the government shut down. Now's the time to do all the polluting. Uh, Emily, thank you <laughs> so much for joining us this morning and putting this in some context that we can understand. No problem. Thanks for having me. Really p- appreciate it. Listen, up next, we're gushing over Brooklyn Nine-Nines, Stephanie Beatriz. Be right back.
8: Alana Kaplan tweeted, I loved talking to Stephanie Beatriz. She's fucking inspiring, hilarious, and more than generous with her time. While Alana, who is a freelance writer for the New York Times, Rolling Stone, and more, joins me now to discuss her piece and to crown our Woman Crush Wednesday, who obviously is Stephanie Beatrice. Oh, look at that, look at that cute little thing. Alana, thank you so much for coming around to talk about this with me. Thank you for having me. So how did you end up profiling Stephanie?
9: Um, I think her publicist had reached out a while ago, but I was just following how open she was about coming out as bisexual and the storyline that really was informed by her coming out on um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine.
8: Yeah, because I feel like a lot of people didn't really know a lot about her before, you know, I feel like this past year, she's kind of really come into her own and come into her own moment. Did anything unexpected come out of the conversation?
9: I think the fact that she was such a theater nerd. Like, I, I had no idea that she was pursuing theater in school and that's really was what she wanted to do initially and, I mean, she'd love to do that again, but she she really wants to do anything. Um, I was really um, in awe of her, um, the story she told me about asking to direct and kind of having that, she used a Spanish term that I really don't want to mess up. So, um, but it's about like feeling shame around embarrassment, about like being a woman and asking first what you want with regards to your ambition and asking to direct an episode of, Um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's hard to ask for what you want.
8: That's so interesting. I really if anyone knows that term I would love to hear it. That sounds like something that a lot of women could relate to Well, we had Stephanie on this show about a year ago, and let's play a little clip from that interview.
0: The one thing I'm most struck about you sound absolutely nothing like your character. You must get that all the time. I
9: get that all the time. I sound nothing like her. I act nothing like her. I don't get stopped on the street very often, unless I'm like with Joe Latrullo or like Melissa. People like,
0: wait a minute, I know these people. But most of the
9: time, it's you know, you remind me of the girl that plays Rosa on (laughs) Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I'm like, I'm her. Uh, Oh, that's me. No, you're
8: not. (laughs) That's so funny. And she was such a delight to have on the show. And obviously, I feel like Brooklyn Nine-Nine in general, I feel like has really grown up and people have started talking about how much they love the show, and specifically this character of Rosa Diaz. Do you think that people are getting to know Stephanie as an actress more as well?
9: I think so too. I I think they are. Um, I think that her coming out also led to people getting more information about her and when i profiled her it was an opportunity for her to really like share her voice um and her ambition and um i think what's funny about like that clip that was just shown she is the most bubbly human being like the kind of person you would want to pound a bunch of shots with which is what i actually originally had in like the copy at one point Um, she's just The opposite, she lowers her voice an octave to play Rosa, which I think is really funny. And Rosa's very um, short with the way that she responds to things. And Stephanie is just very vibrant and detail-oriented and everything.
8: I think that that's probably a mark of a good actress, right? If you are so good at getting into your character that people literally don't recognize you on the street. Okay, so we learned in your piece that she is directing an episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is super exciting. Do we have any idea what's next
9: for her? What did, she, did she have any other plans? Um, I think as long as the show keeps doing well, hopefully it'll get renewed again. Um, she'd like to direct more. That's what she told me.
8: as we learned from the Oscars this year we could always use more strong female directors making great content, getting out there so we'll definitely be following that aspect of her career and celebrating her as our Women Crush Wednesday Alana, thank you so much for joining me Thank you for having me Up next, Isaac and Saeed are reading your tweets
0: Welcome back. Birthday Shibe. had this to say about our tweet of the day. Really? Happy birthday? I think so. Happy birthday. Because it's usually like a different Shebae. Happy birthday. Had this to say uh, (laughs) about our tweet of the day. Isaac is still out here borrowing Netflix credits, isn't he? Uh, Credits, sorry. Are you? I ain't saying shit.
1: I don't know why you guys even put that tweet in there. Absolutely. I ain't giving you nothing. Someone, a friend of mine who was like a grown-ass adult asked me for mine yesterday and I was like, no. Here's the not. thing. Here's the thing. Okay, <laughs> now I'm, I'm not going to talk about myself personally but the fact of the matter is is that the
0: president of Netflix himself I, uh, in an interview many years ago I think... Oh, that was HBO. Somebody at HBO has said about something Game of Thrones. similar. Yeah. Has said something similar which yeah. is that they're like we really don't mind that people share past right. codes. It's all about just getting people into the system. I'm just throwing that out That is out crazy.
1: There. Yeah, that's a blast from the past. That yeah. was like a... A live interview, I think, with Ben Smith in like twenty fourteen. I'm just saying, if the president of your company says it in an interview <laughs> that you can do it, I'm not saying I do it, but yeah. allegedly, I feel yeah. like you can do it. I mean, it's pretty obvious if the the platforms don't want us to share content, they know how to make it difficult to do so. so. Yeah, I got like two. Never mind. I'm I'm no, 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 no. Okay, <laughs> Pix Maven tweeted, "Hello, yes, I am fully here for, I, for Ayanna Ayana Presley's receipts." Um, I said this yesterday. I mean, it's a, and and this is why I think the House people refer to is like it's the people's chamber, right? Like, um, it's a delight seeing more black women in Congress. It's a delight uh, seeing younger people, and by younger people, I mean people under the age of 40 or 50, um, in the House, because it is nice to see your reality as a constituent reflected back to you. And yes, part of that is uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talking about RuPaul's Drag Race, or Ayanna Presley being like, I have receipts. And it's it's fun, and it's the key key, but it also connects to, I think, Constituents seeing themselves reflected in their public officials—that's exciting, regardless of where you are on the, you know, the political spectrum. I, I guess you know Republicans might feel that way about their people.
0: It's the key key of the House Oversight <laughs> Committee. And Anita Trill says, "I love Golden Brooks so much, and her explanation of her girlfriend's character, Maya. I wanted to give Maya integrity. She deserved that. And oh. I gotta say, I." Absolutely love that. When I, that whole interview was a joy to watch, Golden of course. Books. But just talking
1: about that and there's levels and there's complexity, yeah. and it's not just like grind, grind, grind. I really enjoyed that. It was, and, and y'all know. I know many people. I mean, Girlfriends was on from 2000 to 2008, so for a lot of us, that's like high school into college. You know, Tracy Ellis Ross, that was her big star turn before you know now Blackish. Um, grew up with these women, and now like in my thirties myself, and as a professional, seeing women work and thrive. And Maya, you know, was not. The the wealthiest character on the show. No, she was that's, not that. But she was smart, mm-hmm. she had that integrity, and that's why she was always saying, oh hell no, because she was mm-hmm. calling out bullshit. I love her, and Golden Brooks, God, she was just wonderful. Oh. So happy for her. Golden. And now she gets to scare the shit out of us in her role <laughs> on I Am the Night. It's gonna she's, be a dark well. Jimmy Lee is very different. Well, in any case, thank you, Golden. And thank you to all of our <laughs> guests today. Um, can you believe it's only Wednesday? No. Okay. Well, fair. Um, Adam B. Berry, Azin Garaci, Lysandra Via, Chris Geithner, Golden Brooks, Emily Atkin, <laughs> Alana Kaplan, and Stephanie McNeil. We will be back here tomorrow. It'll be Thursday for at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of
0: your day. You're getting through the week. You're doing it. You're doing it.